Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Today's episode has been sponsored by Serial Box. Serial Box delivers addictive book content in short listen or read installments designed to fit into today's fast-paced mobile lifestyle. Switch between listening and reading with a single click, picking up right where you left off. Learn more at SerialBox.com, S-E-R-I-A-L-B-O-X.com. I am so thrilled to be interviewing Nora McInerney, who is the author of two memoirs, It's Okay to Laugh, Crying is Cool Too, and No Happy Endings. She's the founder of the nonprofit Still Kickin' in memory of her husband, Aaron, who passed away from brain cancer at age 35. She also founded the Hot Young Widows Club. Graduate of Xavier University, Nora has contributed to many publications, including Elle, Cosmopolitan, Vox, and Time Magazine. She's also the host of the podcast Terrible, Thanks for Asking. She currently lives in Minneapolis with her husband and children. Hi, Nora. How are you? Hi. How's it going? Thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. <laughs> hey, no problem. You can hear me okay? Yes. It's not too noisy in here? No, it's okay, great. So. Can you can you hear me okay? I can. It's wonderful. Excellent. <laughs> well, I'm so honored that you agreed to come on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books because I'm, I'm really such a huge fan of you and your writing and still kicking and basically everything that you're doing. So thank you for taking the time. Thank you. It's super fun. I'm glad we finally get to talk and thank you for being so flexible. Things oh. are bonkers and we're getting snowed in every other day here. So my kids basically have not had a full week of school since winter break. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Either there's like a random day off, there's a teacher in service, or it was a snow day like yesterday. So yeah, they keep that. We didn't schedule this for yesterday or would have been like me like yelling. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. No, I get it. They keep shortening my kids' school days just to make all the logistics really confusing. But anyway. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's good. It's very helpful. Well, can we talk a little about your books? Yeah, I'd love to. Your latest book, No Happy Endings, is just amazing. I mean, I really, I just couldn't put it down. I felt like I was just sitting talking to you or something. It was it was amazing. At the beginning of your book, you, you had the funniest little thing in your introduction. You said, wait, you may be thinking with an eye roll at the ready, is this entire book going to be about this lady complaining about how sad she is that she got to fall in love twice? Well, no, that's not what the entire book is about. <laughs> and then you say, <laughs> then you say, I'm happy, but I don't have my perfect Hollywood ending because it isn't always happy and it isn't the end. This is life after life after life and all of the chaos and contradiction of feelings and doings and beings involved. There will be unimaginable joy and incomprehensible tragedy. There will be endings, but there will be no happy endings. Oh, I mean, if that doesn't make someone want to read a book, I don't know what does. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. So for people who might not know your story and what your books are really about, the gist of them, so to speak, can you tell listeners a little more about your background and what made you even start writing your two memoirs? Yes, my, oh, good golly. It's, I mean, so everything that I ever, every time I have to say sort of the origin story of my writing, I just have to preface it with, I'm going to have to leave a pause for like the, uh moment, which is that until about November 2014, I was just a lady in her early 30s working in marketing and advertising and going every day to my office job and making PowerPoints and being very highly stressed about, I'm not even sure what, there were a lot of emergencies. (laughs) And in November 2014, my husband Aaron died after three years of brain cancer. And six weeks before that, my father died of just, I guess, regular cancer, just sort of a general cancer of the everything. And then five days before that, I had lost our second pregnancy. Aaron and I had 
been hoping to have another baby and I, mean, I lost it like 11 weeks and six days, just a rude oh. date where you're like, no, 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 like, no, it's <laughs> no. Cause tomorrow would be okay. second. Tra- so now this can't happen. Like right. if it would have, if I could have made it one more day, it would have been impossible, which is, is of course false, but that's what it feels like. And I, my first memoir is called it's okay to laugh. Crying is cool too. And is really, I mean, it's a love story. It was written in the, six months after Aaron died. So it is a story told from the chaos of that grief, which I'm very grateful that I got to do because I know that there are a lot of really, really helpful books, books that I've loved that were written from a distance, right? Like from a certain amount of time past the event, which does give you a different perspective, but being in something is a perspective too. So this book, No Happy Endings, is written in it, in the blending of my family as it currently stands. I have a living husband now. His name is Matthew. Combined, we have four children in our family, and it is wonderful. I always wanted four kids, and I have them, and I do not have them the way that I thought I would have them. And I do know, and part of that first sentence that you read, that I am incredibly lucky, and that I am also incredibly unlucky. And that is what makes me so boring and so human that all of these things that happen to us that are so extraordinary are also completely ordinary. This is life doing what it does, which is breaking our hearts. And any moment that things are not terrible, I now know like that's, that's a good day. My definition of a good day has definitely changed. So this memoir is, you know, I started writing it really when when I, I never stopped writing after the the first book came out. And I started writing this one as soon as I turned in the other one. And in that, I met Matthew and we had a baby and we got married in that order. And we built this family and our family is so wonderful. And also our family came from two broken places. It took a divorce and a death to make this family. So we have a beautiful thing that came from two really, really difficult traumatic events. And I think that's true of of most of us, that we have these really beautiful things and we have to hold them alongside these really difficult things that we've gone through or will continue to go through. I'm going to argue that your life is not boring, especially after, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I was like, I was like, did I hear her right? Did she describe her, her life as boring? I mean, I understand what you're saying. Of course, these things happen, but that doesn't make it, I mean, it's still quite a story and I, it's so amazing for you to have shared it. And I think that the fact that you did it while you were in it is just so compelling. I mean, just to feel everything you were going through, especially knowing how helpful it is to other people, right? I mean. Thank you. Yeah, I, I honestly didn't know what what else to do mm-hmm. to get through things, honestly. Like it's, I definitely could have waited. And I think if I wrote this book or my other book, if I wrote them in 10 years, they'd be very, very different books because I think the edges would be dulled a little. Mm-hmm. So you started writing a blog when Aaron was sick. Is that just when you started writing to process everything? No, I think I've always been... I mean, I'm sitting in my office, which used to be our family's dining room until we realized who uses the dining room. <laughs> like, no, 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 this is now this is now mom's office and the doors are always shut. But I'm sitting here in this office with boxes and boxes of my old journals from childhood. And I was always uh, documenting and I was always writing and I was always processing things that way. It definitely took a back burner when I was in my mid twenties and 
I was working all the time. I was working all the time. And I was like, what would I, I mean, who wants to write what I have to say? I'm, I'm like, who cares? Like, I don't even have, I don't even have a life because all I do is work. I don't have anything. I don't have anything to say. I I'm, I'm so bored of myself. And <laughs> I met Aaron and, and he was like, you're really funny. Like we would text and not even text. We would G chat. This was like 2011. Um, so we would G chat all day. And he was like, you're so, you're a good writer. Like, well, thank you. Thank you. And writing was a part of my job, but it wasn't in my job title. And so I always felt sort of self-conscious about it as if I were faking mm-hmm. that part of my life. And I started writing for a few really small websites and Aaron was so encouraging. And he read everything I wrote, even when they were, you know, stories about my dating life from before I had met him. And I did not think, you know, oh, like Aaron got sick and it's not as if the first thing I did was start a a blog about it. And I definitely didn't want to have a cancer blog, but anybody who has been somebody's person Mm -hmm. during a tragedy, during a trauma knows that it's really hard to get all of the information to all of the people. And I started with an email list and I was always forgetting someone important, like one of my brothers, always (laughs) the same brother, by the way, I'm so sorry, Austin, like constantly he would be like, what? Aaron's having another brain surgery. I'm like, oh shit, you weren't on the email. <laughs> and it's just so hard to manage that. And I also, at the time, was, I was writing every day in a journal. I was writing, I still find like notebooks that have bits and pieces of our life in the hospital from that first week. And I made a Tumblr, again, 2011, <laughs> I made a Tumblr. And I, it was private. It was password protected as if anyone would find like my secret feelings and care. And <laughs> Just our family read it, and then more people started asking for the password, and I unlocked it, and that became kind of how I updated people on what was happening, but Mm -hmm. also how I just dealt with it. And Aaron, I would write everything, and Aaron would read everything. And so I was never telling his story. I was telling, you know, the side of the story that was mine to tell and only with his approval. But Aaron and I did write his obituary together and that went viral when he died in 2014. And that is how my literary agent found me. So whenever people are like, how do I get an agent? I'm like, I don't, I guess you could hope that your husband dies and you two write a viral obituary together. But other than that, I don't have any tactical advice for you, unfortunately. (laughs) I'm so sorry. I feel bad even laughing at that. I feel, (laughs) I can't even... (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. You mentioned in No Happy Endings that after all the stuff you've gone through, you've now found yourself drawn to people who tell you the truth when you ask who they are, who've also experienced hard things. And as you said, who had also walked through the fire. Can you tell me a little more about that? How can you sort of suss people out and, and tell what they've, you know, when they're on the same wavelength? I mean, yeah, I think once you've gone through something difficult, you can tell if somebody is going to be able to handle it or not. And I also have to say that I was in the latter groups for most of my life. I was definitely a person who would ask how you were. And and just if you gave me any answer other than fine, I would just sort of sit there awkwardly and not know what to say. But once you've gone through something difficult or you're in the middle of something difficult, if you just don't want to BS anybody anymore and you sort of almost accidentally or sort of unintentionally, I should say, find yourself gravitating towards towards people that you can just tell something about them. Like they are in it or they've gone through it and they will get it. Mm-hmm. So my my social circle did change a lot. And I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with after they've lost somebody that they love is that 
huge, huge shift mm-hmm. in their social world. And that's really, really painful. And what I want to say is that it's okay. Like it's okay. And sometimes people leave so that the right people can take their place. Mm, that's beautiful. I went through a period of a lot of loss in my life as well. When I was 25, I lost five people really close to me, including my best friend on 9-11 and college roommate. And I feel like since that year, my whole life, my perspective on everything has changed. And so when someone I know, you know, loses a parent or something like that, I'm the first one to be like, you know what? Yes, you do still email. You do still call. Like people check their emails yeah. through whatever is going on. Just so crazy, show up, do this yeah. stuff, right? People are like, oh, I don't want to bother them. Like really? You th- anyway. What do you think sadness is? Like, it's just like an all-encompassing, like, little sleeping bag you zip yourself into. No, the world keeps turning. They still need milk. Right, they exactly. Still need, they still got to do stuff. And I also, I, I feel for you because 25, very, very few people have gone through anything. And I can only imagine how isolating that must have been. Because if, I mean, I, I had a very good friend who lost his father when we were 27. And I went to the funeral and then that was it. I never brought his dad up again. Mm. Ever. Yep. That's the other, that's like, I I thought that was the right thing to do. Right. As if like, I'm not going to be thinking about these people, like you're going to bring it up and that's going to make me sad. Not the loss of the person I love. (laughs) Right. Or like, I'll bring it up and you'll be like, I forgot my dad was dead. So thanks a bunch. Right. Okay. (laughs) I mean, wow. um, Way um, to ruin my day. Unfortunately, I think, you know, I think most people have a first do no harm sort of mentality about loss, right? Like they just don't want to mess something up. So I think people often, you know, maybe don't do enough. Anyway, I don't know. I could go on forever. But. Yeah, that's a really, that's a really generous outlook. I like that. <laughs> so in No Happy Endings, you have so much great stuff in there about like, even if there had been no loss, just the fact of the blended arrangement of your family would be just mm-hmm. a hilarious book in and of itself. Anyway, you write, we do not choose our parents. We do not choose whether their marriages last or when they end. And we do not choose whether or not our parents fall in love again. In short, being a child totally sucks and nothing is in our control. These kids have seen love die and seen love grow. And I want them all to know that love is a choice that we make and a job that we do. We choose each other every day. And then you said, I've stepped into this life as a mom, as a stepmom. I'm still walking, stepping lightly, often tripping, sometimes falling. Is it as easy as it looks on Instagram? Yes and no, but it's so damn worth it. Ah, that was so great. <laughs> Thank you. I'm just going to sit here and read your whole book out loud. You know, that's basically. I'm so glad because I've completely forgotten writing it at this point because <laughs> you just look at it so much and then you hand it off and you're just like, I can't see it again. And you were reading that. And I was like, yeah, wow, good. So thank you for <laughs> reminding me. My book is good. Thank you. <laughs> glad I could yeah, be of help. Yeah. You know, anytime you need yeah, a pep talk, I mean, you just call me. I'll read you another passage. So. I, I absolutely will, except your number came up as restricted. So you're going to need to text me after this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> will do. Full <laughs> contact info. Thank you. Yeah, I love parenting in all of its forms. And by love it, I mean, sometimes I'm, I think, what have I done? And can I escape? <laughs> can I, like, how much gas is in my tank? Could I make it to Mexico? <laughs> and also, I just look at all these kids and I think, God, how cool. Like, how cool that we get to do this mm-hmm. and that we get to show them what love is and what it can do, which is, I think that the grind of parenthood and the grind of marriage, and I mean, it is a grind to have a family. There are moments where you just feel so light and fluffy and everything's yesterday there was a snow day. We were all laying in bed watching 
a terrible movie, Spy Kids. No offense, but it does not stand the test of time. No offense, taken. <laughs> no offense, children, who all love it, by the way. Mm-hmm. 17-year-old was like, oh, greatest movie ever. 12-year-old, oh, this movie. Five-year-old in complete attention. Two-year-old, like, just went catatonic. Love this movie. And, like, there are those moments when you just think, oh, my gosh, what could be better than this? But most of it is, like, a very complicated relay race where, you know, like, okay, I'll get this kid at this time. Which one of you is going to actually eat this dinner that I spent time making and you didn't do your home. It's just so much. And you're managing four other human lives and all of their emotions. And I think you, it's very easy to forget that these kids are learning love from you Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. you can teach them like through your actions like how big love is or how small love is. And you can teach them that love is possession and that there's only so much to go around. And if you love this person, that means you love another person less. And I think we'd also be surprised how pervasive that action is around us. And you can also teach them that it is complicated and that it is work and that that's okay. Yeah. I literally said something similar to my five-year-old daughter. I have four kids also. And I said something similar to my five-year-old daughter yesterday because she had a friend come over and she's like, I don't know. I think maybe my friendship bucket is filled for today. And I was like, it doesn't work like that. It's like love. You can't have enough friends. Like you don't fill up on friends and not have any more room. You, there's always room for more friends. There's always room for more love. It does. It's, that's just not the way it goes. So You'll just make more. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I have like, my five-year-old is me as a child, you know, like very, very concerned that there won't be enough, mm-hmm. you know, like there won't like that, that he is somehow not as loved and all of them have that, right. They all came from minus his baby who was just sort of born into this family. Like they all really do need that assurance that they have a specific place in the world and in this family. Hmm. How do you do that? It's so hard, but it's, I mean, I also do try to explain and verbalize like my own feelings to mm-hmm. the kids as well. So they can see it's not as if dad and I know absolutely the best way to do everything all of the time. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I'm, you know, careful. I don't, we don't overburden the children, but I do want them to know, like, I will say out loud, like you said to your five-year-old, like, it doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> it doesn't work that way. I want you to repeat after me, like, my sister loves me. My brothers love me. My mom loves me. Okay. We're all on the same team. That's good. I like that mantra. I'm going to steal that. And I want to, <laughs> yeah. And I say to Like, I also have to really remember every day to thank the kids for the things that they do, like for our family. Like, thank you. Thank you. Oh my gosh, you, you emptied the dishwasher. Thank you. That is awesome. I appreciate it. Like everybody wants to feel appreciated and everybody wants to feel like like they have a place. Mm -hmm. And I think really our biggest insecurity as humans is like, maybe, maybe we don't. And so the things that you think are obvious as an adult are really never that obvious. Like, how many reassurances do you need as a person every day? I need a lot. Yeah, like, <laughs> more, like than I, more than I, I want to admit. Anna sometimes, and I'm like, tell me I'm not, tell me I'm not a failure, please. <laughs> you had another great line at the end of the book. You said, the worst that can happen isn't that I die. I'm going to die. It's spending our time here trying to avoid the depths of misery and in the process, missing out on the climb to happiness. It's spending our time in the middle, being alive without living, which is very inspiring. So what do you think? How can we avoid this? How can we like wake people up so that they know 
not to do that, not to just sort of passively watch things go by? I think it's so different for everybody. And I think I want to, I also want to be so clear that, you know, I'm not promoting this sort of frenetic internet energy that I I think is very easy to get swept up in, like be a boss, like do your own thing, you know, quit your job, follow your dreams, blah, blah, blah. That's a path for some people. That's not a path for everybody. But I am talking about not waiting for the absolute perfect conditions, which will never arrive, Mm -hmm. and not trying to avoid any negative consequence. And it sounds almost silly. Like, well, who does that? Well, I get messages constantly all day on whatever, whatever email or DMs or whatever, where people are so sure that they're going to make the wrong choice that they just can't make a choice. Hmm. Like, what if I quit my job and the next job is worse? And it's like, well, if you are in a position where you can even consider quitting your job, like, trust me, you have enough privilege to like, find another one. It's okay. Like (laughs) you will, you will do that. You can trust that not every decision is going to necessarily lead you to the very, very best place, but that you can learn and grow from wherever you end up. So I would never have like, I mean, truly, I would never have in a million years found Matthew on the internet. I would not have, you know, (laughs) like he was on there for sure, but I was not going to set my settings to divorced father of two who is five <laughs> eleven on a good day. Okay. On a good day with his shoes on. Like like there's no way. So we have these ideas of the things that we want or the way and not just the what we want, but how we'll get there. And I have on paper everything I wanted. I am a writer. That's my job. I have four kids. That was always what I wanted since I was a little kid. I have a really, really big love. And I got another one too. That's, that's even more than I ever dreamed of. I did not get here the way that I thought I would, but that doesn't mean that here is not a good place to be. That's a great way to look at it. Tell me if you don't mind, if we switch gears for one sec, I know we're almost out of time, but I want to hear a little more about your podcast, Terrible Thanks for Asking, which of course I've listened to and is amazing. Although sometimes I have to turn it off because I'm like, some episodes just get to me a little too much. But um, so (laughs) what gave you the idea to to make it into a podcast and how do you like, do you enjoy it? How much time does it take? It takes a lot of time. That is a full-time job. Mm -hmm. I, you know, you make a podcast. (laughs) I do. (laughs) It sounds like it shouldn't take any time at all, right? I don't know why it sounds like that. It just seems like, yeah, it's just, you're just talking. Yeah, right. No, you're not. There's so many other things. And I do have like just a fantastic production team, which is great. But it was just me and Hans Buto for two years, two years, just the two of us. So the podcast, the title was a rejected book title Hmm. for my first memoir because they thought it was too negative for a book about my husband. Oh my gosh. Which I think is so funny. And I also think is perfect because it's such a good, it perfectly fits the podcast that I know that I have been guilty of answering that. I mean, the most common question that we ask or answer in our lifetime has got to be, how are you? Mm-hmm. Like, how are you? Just it's, it's here in America, it's just small talk. Yeah. And we just, oh, that's fine. Yeah, fine. Fine. Good. And I would say fine, even when Aaron was like at home dying and I was, you know, at the grocery store getting a case of red Gatorade because that's the only thing that he could drink. I'd be like, yeah, good. Never been better. See ya. And <laughs> yeah, you shouldn't dump all your personal problems at like the checkout person at your at your supermarket. But I would tell everybody that I was fine. And I was also simultaneously 
because of, you know, the writing that I was doing, getting so many messages from so many people all around the world who were not fine for various reasons and who had all told their friends and family that they were fine or whose friends and family had stopped asking because, like you said, they were of the, you know, first do no harm mentality where, you know, like it's, if I don't say anything, then I can't say the wrong thing. Exactly. So all of these people were reaching out to a complete stranger just to feel heard and just to feel like what they were going through was real. So the first season truly came from my inbox. The first 10 episodes were all people who had messaged me before I even had a podcast who I replied to and said, hey, would you like to be on a, a podcast that I haven't even um, pitched yet? <laughs> and, and for whatever reason, they said yes. And... And here it is. Excellent. <laughs> so we just talked to we just talked to regular people, just people who are going through stuff. That's it. That's great. I mean, that's yeah. the that's the best way. I mean, that's where stories come from, right? It's <laughs> all of this, you know, sort of artifice around storytelling. It's just really what's going on with people. You can make it up. You yeah. can be a memoir. It can be a podcast. But we all just want to hear yeah. what's going on with everyone. And I don't know. I find it so helpful. So. I know other people do. Well, thank you. So I ordered my green t-shirt. I have it. My still kicking shirt is like on the Yay! on my bureau. <laughs> Yay! Can you tell listeners about how you started it and the story of the t-shirt and now how it's this amazing nonprofit? Yes, thank you. Oh my gosh, I love talking about this. And I feel like I don't do a great job of talking about it, but still kicking is a nonprofit that I started after Aaron died and it is based on Aaron's favorite t-shirt. It was this threadbare, vintage, homemade t-shirt, Kelly Green, very faded with cracked white letters that said still kicking. And he bought it in ironic good health at the apex, I would say, of ironic tees, probably like, you know, the turn of the century, probably 2002, he bought this shirt. And he uh, thought it was so funny. It was one of his favorite shirts and I wasn't allowed to borrow it because I sweat too much. And (laughs) he was wearing it the day that he had a seizure. And I remember going into the ER and seeing him wear that shirt and he was laughing about it. And we didn't know, like, we didn't know it was serious, right? Ah, seizures, that's weird. So we didn't know that he had stage four brain cancer. We didn't know that that night we would get the news that he had a brain tumor and that it looked aggressive, but they can't diagnose it until they give him brain surgery. We just knew that he was 32 and it was Halloween and we had stuff to do. And we laughed, we laughed about that shirt and that shirt definitely changed in meaning and still kicking as an entire organization is Aaron's idea. He wanted to recreate the shirt, sell it, and use the money for something good. And what we use it for, uh, for our organization, we're mainly retail-based, like you mentioned, the iconic green shirt, but we sell other items as well, is we give unrestricted financial grants to people who are going through something difficult. So this does not need to be cancer, does not need to be illness, although the status of our healthcare system in America means that we do get a lot of nominations for people who are experiencing a medical hardship, but there are so many difficulties that we face and we give people the two things that I know from experience are really helpful when you're going through something. One is to be seen as more than just a sad story. So we tell these people stories without pity. And the second is money. And I don't care what you use this money for. Like you can go to Disney World, you can pay your mortgage. That's that's up to you. And to date, we've given over $150,000 away, I think the last time I checked, and we are three years old. Wow. So That's fantastic. That's so great that you do that. Yeah. You buy a thing and you help a person out and 
I love that those two words, still okay, can mean something different to everyone. And I love that. Like, I love it. I love seeing people wear them and send me their stories and why they bought them or who they bought them for. And it's definitely just uh, the thing that reminds me the most of, of how special Aaron was, especially because he just, he would have loved that it is not just about him and that it's not just about cancer and that we are able to and willing to help so many people through so many different kinds of things. That's awesome. I know we're almost out of time here and I have like so many other things I would want to talk to you about. I feel like I could talk to you all day or just listen to you talk, really. Do you have any parting advice for aspiring authors? And I obviously not to have bad things happen so you can get book deals, but something else, something else. We'll eliminate that. Find a husband, second, (laughs) give him a brain tumor. Uh, That's really it. No, I, I think that people get very, very like caught up in their own insecurity, myself included, by the way, like every day I have to truly remind myself to keep my eyes on my own paper and do my own thing. If you are looking for a reason to believe that what you have to say is unimportant or that you're not a good writer, you will find it and you'll find it on the internet. <laughs> and and you you don't need that. Like you really don't. The only thing that all writers have in common is that they they write. And so it does involve discipline, like you have to sit down and do it, which is, to me, the hardest thing. But you don't have to worry about sounding like what's cool or being the people that you admire. Or if somebody has written something, I get, okay, so I get a lot of messages that are like, oh, I read your book and, you know, shit, it's, you know, my husband died. No, I can't write a book about that. Like, do you think I'm the first person whose husband died and wrote a book? Like, no, I did not invent this. I can't believe anybody said that to you. That's like totally, I cannot even believe that. I get this message constantly, like constantly. And I'm like, don't worry, you can. Because when my husband died, he wasn't your husband. Your experience, totally different. And your point of view, totally valid. So don't, don't worry too much about that kind of stuff, especially for women. That is the easiest thing that we can do is find a reason not to do something Mm. and like look for validation that our idea is not good enough, not clever enough, like not unique enough. Just start, just start your thing. Awesome. Well, Nora, thank you so much. I really appreciate all your time and hoping that you don't have too many more snow days in your near future. And you can, uh... honestly, (laughs) I, I can't believe you gave me the opportunity to talk more about the weather because I'm staring out at our cul-de-sac, our mailbox is completely covered. I can't receive mail right now. I'm pretty sure it's my responsibility as a citizen to dig out my mailbox, but I don't have it in me. Okay. I don't have it in me, but please don't mail me anything. And thank you for, for giving me the chance to, to talk and for being a promoter of books, which is so important and so wonderful and really means a lot as an author to be able to talk about. Your work is very cool. So thank you. Oh, thanks. All right. We'll take care. And um, yeah, think, oh wait, before this club yes. of Minnesota goodbye where you don't let anyone go. If you want like a hardcover to do a giveaway with, just send Hannah an email and we'll get you on. Totally. All right. Yes, I will definitely do that. Thank you so much. Okay. All awesome. right. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Today's episode was sponsored by Serial Box, S-E-R-I-A-L-B-O-X.com, SerialBox.com, delivering addictive book content in short listen or read installments. Thanks to Ryan and Steve at Texture Sound for the audio editing and mixing. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. (laughs) 